Chapter 16. Psychiatry is in deep crisis. Peter Gotcha, in his Deadly Medicines and Organized Crime, published in 2013, said, Psychiatry is the drug industry's paradise, as definitions of psychiatric disorders are vague and easy to manipulate. Leading psychiatrists are at high risk of corruption, and indeed, psychiatrists collect more money from drug makers than doctors in any other specialty. Those who take the most money tend to prescribe antipsychotics to children most often. Psychiatrists are also, quote, educated with industry's hospitality more often than any other specialty. This has dire consequences for the patients. How Modern Psychiatry Developed A few decades ago, psychiatrists were losing their status. Then the fabrication of new diagnoses, along with the invention of medications to treat them, saved them economically. First the antidepressants, and then the newer antipsychotics came to the rescue. This moved the specialty into the medical mainstream because the psychiatrists were the only ones who purportedly understood it all. The novel diagnoses, some say concoctions, were enshrined in the psychiatric manual, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that's the DSM. Pharmaceutical companies played a huge role in its creation. The American Psychiatric Association, that's the APA, started aggressive disease-mongering of the new ailments. They hired ad agencies to produce, quote, public service drug advertising. The corporations marketed the new supposed cures alongside. By 2008, 28% of the APA's income came from drug companies. According to Influence Theory, this made the APA virtually a subsidiary of the companies. Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa, publicized the story in a congressional investigation. Ben Furman, M.D., a psychiatrist in Finland, explained how it happened in a 2018 blog, quote, The psychoanalytic belief system was thrown out and replaced with the DSM in the biometric doctrine. Everyone should have a diagnosis and everyone should have medication. The psychiatrists now treated all the conditions that had been treated with therapy with medication. This became the treatment of choice for almost all mental health conditions, regardless of whether the patient was an adult, teenager, or child. A patient without medication became a rarity. The data system of mental health services required clinicians to diagnose anyone who sought help. The psychiatrists and corporations ignored studies showing damage from long-term drug use. They left disparaging critics out of the debate and out of textbooks. Finally, long after the science matured, a few of the doctors are telling the truth. In 2012, an editorial in the British Journal of Psychiatry said the psychiatric medication revolution was an, at an end. Others now echo the sentiment. The DSM is a kind of chaotic Bible used to promote mental diseases. With its code numbers used for insurance, some call it the Billing Bible. Created primarily by psychiatrists on industry payroll, it mutates and metastasizes every few years through a vote of the APA members. In 2017, after many editions, it was 947 pages long. Insiders have decried its intellectual disarray for decades. 
It has become the perverse standard in the service of drug marketing. The following are a few inside opinions about it. This is from Christopher Lane's book, Shyness, How Normal Behavior Became a Sickness, published in 2007. He was quoting one of the DSM's contributors. Quote, There was very little systemic research, and much of the research that existed was really a hodgepodge, scattered, inconsistent, and ambiguous. I think the majority of us recognize that the amount of good, solid science upon which we were making our decisions was pretty modest. A second quote is by Alan Francis, who was the lead psychiatrist for DSM-4 and the author of his book, Saving Normal, published in 2013. Quote, I pictured all these normal enough people being captured in the DSM-5's excessively wide diagnostic net, and I worried that many would be exposed to unnecessary medicine with possibly dangerous side effects the drug companies would be licking their chops, figuring out how best to exploit the inviting new targets for their well-practiced disease-mongering. I was keenly alive to the risks because of painful first-hand experience. Despite our efforts to tame excessive diagnostic exuberance, DSM-4 had since been misused to blow up the diagnostic bubble. The next quote is Bruce E. Levine, psychologist and journalist. Quote, the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, in 2013 finally tossed the DSM, Psychiatry's Diagnostic System, into the wastebasket. Marcia Angle, former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, said in 2011, quote, Of the 170 contributors to the most recent edition of the DSM, 95 had financial ties to drug companies, including all of the contributors in the sections on mood disorders and schizophrenia. Not only did the DSM become the Bible of psychiatry, but like the real Bible, it depended a lot on something akin to revelation. There are no citations of scientific studies to support its decision. That is an astonishing omission. The last quote is from former National Institute of Mental Health Director Thomas Insel. Quote, The DSM's diagnostic categories lack validity and the NIMH will be reorienting its research away from DSM categories. The authors of the DSM seem more preoccupied with politically correct jargon than substance. There are hundreds of psychiatry blogs where participants argue obsessively about the terminology, and there is a massive effort in each edition to update it. For example, they change mental retardation to intellectual disability. In 2010, this change was written into federal law. Multiple personality disorder morphed into dissociative identity disorder for the DSM-5. Other diagnoses were hatched. For example, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder and premenstrual dysphoric disorder. This was formerly late luteal phase dysphoric disorder. For many more samples, scan the entire document online. I read it for hours and did not think it got any better. To understand the DSM-5 better, scan the following excerpt. This is a quote. Criteria for oppositional defiant disorder a pattern of angry, irritable, 
mood argumentative defiant behavior or vindictiveness lasting at least six months as evidenced by at least four symptoms from the, any of the following categories and exhibited during interaction with at least one individual who is not a sibling. First, angry, irritable mood. Number one, often loses temper. Number two, is often touchy or easily annoyed. Number three, is often angry and resentful. Second, argumentative, defiant behavior. Often argues with authority figures or, for children and adolescents, with adults. Often actively defies or refuses to comply with requests from authority figures or with rules. Often deliberately annoys others. Often blames others for his or her mistakes or misbehavior. Parents of boys need no other commentary unless they support using medications with pernicious side effects to suppress normal but somewhat irritating behavior. The DSM has worldwide influence. It is the ultimate resource for courts, doctors, prisons, hospitals, and insurance companies. These diagnoses lock people into legal and therapeutic boxes, but they're of dubious benefit since the drugs work poorly and promote chronicity. Since withdrawal from these medications is severe and mimics the conditions treated, long-term use becomes almost inevitable. The corporations blatantly falsify research to get psychiatric drugs approved. The study deceits I reviewed in the FDA chapter are all used. Studies that show drugs do not work get concealed. Positive reviews get published multiple times, and the journals mostly only print the data that shows the drugs work. These last two tricks are such standard practice that the drug makers have internal names for them, quote, salami slicing and, quote, cherry picking, respectively. Another often used fraud is to compare massive doses of an old drug, such as Thorazine, with standard doses of a new medication. This makes the side effects of the new one look modest. In proper drug studies, patients who take a placebo are compared with those consuming the genuine thing. However, in some psychiatric research, the people chosen to receive the sugar pill recently discontinued an older antipsychotic such as Thorazine. They are having withdrawal effects such as severe restlessness, which is called akesthesia, and anxiety. Placebo patients should not have any reactions. When such a trial is over, the lie is told that the treatment group using the drug had fewer ill effects, fewer side effects than the sugar pill group, which is absurd. Psychiatric drugs are disasters. For example, Hingartner and his colleagues did a 30-year prospective study of 591 depressed Swiss adults at the University of Zurich. They found that no use of SSRI, that's the Prozac class medications, had better patient outcomes than some use, which in turn had better results than long-term use. After nine years, they reported that the SSRIs caused more depression rather than less. The benzodiazepines, the Valium class drugs, relieve anxiety for a few weeks. But after a month, they stop working. After this, patients require higher doses to produce the same effects. Later, if the drugs are discontinued, months of agonizing dread, sleeplessness, and crippling nervousness commonly occur. The original studies of Xanax for anxiety were for 14 weeks. After four weeks, it was working. 
After eight weeks, it was not. And at the end of the study, as the experimenters withdrew the drug from the patients, they got much worse. The psychiatrists and the drug maker ignored the longer-term results and claimed there was a net benefit based on the first four weeks. I have a reference here to Robert Whitaker's YouTube video that explains the whole thing. The FDA approved the drug, and it became not only the most commonly prescribed benzodiazepine, but the most frequently prescribed psychiatric medication. But Xanax is addictive, and most physicians are well aware of it by now. Other benzodiazepines are also hard to stop. Clonopin, which is clonazepam, is a chemically similar drug. One patient I worked with had used this 17-hour benzodiazepine to sleep every night for a decade. He decided to stop it. I wrote a compounding pharmacy prescription for smaller and smaller doses, so he tapered it over three months. He suffered with anxiety and sleeplessness the whole time, but felt better at the end. He said his energy and creativity both improved. Another example. Bipolar patients' outcomes are profoundly worse in today's medication era than they were before. Prior to the drugs, the disease often went away on its own. But now we treat children who have psychological ups and downs with a stimulant or antidepressant before their first severe mania develops. The ones treated with antidepressants have four times increased chances of becoming, quote, rapid cyclers, which means they have frequent recurrences. Robert Whitaker, a distinguished journalist, summarized the horrific medication problems in his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, published in 2010. Given what the scientific literature revealed about the long-term outcomes of medicated schizophrenia, anxiety, and depression, it stood to reason that the drug cocktails used to treat bipolar illness were unlikely to produce good long-term results. The increased chronicity, the functional decline, the cognitive impairment, and the physical illness. These are usual in people treated with a cocktail that often includes an antidepressant, an antipsychotic, a mood stabilizer, a benzodiazepine, and perhaps a stimulant too. This was a medical train wreck. Whitaker learned that most patients in emerging countries could not afford psychiatric drugs. Doctors there may even leave psychotic people unmedicated. The result is much less chronicity and some spontaneous cures. Almost half of the people with schizophrenia recover if they never get antipsychotics, but in the U.S., with treatment, this happens rarely or possibly never. History is also encouraging. Before the drugs were developed, some studies showed the same thing. But since Americans now medicate practically everyone, comparison with placebo has become impossible. In the U.S., mental illness, disability, and drug prescribing rose in tandem. Our psychiatric disability percentages have grown over tenfold since the modern medication era. Whitaker built a cautiously stated and well-referenced case that the medications were the cause. He also reported studies showing that within a few years, antipsychotics cause brain shrinkage in both monkeys and humans. Psychiatrists have pressures to pass out medications. I interviewed one who said, quote, We cannot support our families unless we see a patient every 10 minutes and give them the latest drug. Most of us know these are unproven, ineffective, and sometimes harmful, but people will not pay us just to talk with them anymore. David Healy further describes this circus in his book, Pharmageddon, published in 2012. 
The industry's interest in funding psychiatry picked up when Prozac became available in 1987. As these SSRIs and other inventions became lucrative, corporations spared no expense for the psychiatrists. They cater food, pay for meetings, arrange free hotel rooms, and sometimes provide first-class plane tickets for them. Lectures, trinkets, social events, limousine service, and massive exhibit halls are all available courtesy of the drug makers. These companies give some working psychiatrists three hundred dollars to $400,000 per year. This creates the desired effect. For example, one group from the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology published a claim in 2004 that SSRIs did not cause youth suicides. They were discredited after the discovery that nine of the ten doctors on the panel had a financial relationship with the industry. The psychiatrists have credible excuses. The phenomena they treat are chronic and poorly understood. No labs, physical testing, or examination findings help make the diagnosis. Studying treatment is difficult because every detail is subjective. I felt sorry for them until I read about their misbehavior. Since nothing seems to help in their frustration, they have historically tried about anything. Ice water baths, electrical brain shocks, that's electroconvulsive therapy or ECT, overdosing with insulin to crash the blood sugar, even a destructive brain surgery called lobotomy, for which the inventor received the 1949 Nobel Prize in Medicine. These were all discredited. ECT, for example, is no longer believed to be effective and at least a third of those treated suffer substantial memory loss. Worse, the fatality rate is one out of a thousand. Psychiatrists customarily use medication combinations. They prescribe Topamax and Lamictal, which are unpleasant anti-seizure medications to treat various symptoms and side effects. Depression, drug abuse, anxiety, and bipolar disease are all treated off-label using these. Military psychiatrists are fond of giving these seizure treatment drugs to combat troops. They often throw antipsychotics into these, quote, drug cocktails. The side effects of all these medications include fever, hair loss, nausea, mood changes, dizziness, diarrhea, double vision, loss of appetite, and even suicide. Brixanolone is a steroid hormone approved in 2019 for postpartum depression. It requires 60 hours of medically supervised intravenous injection, costing $34,000. Progesterone, a female hormone that rises during pregnancy and goes nearly to zero postpartum, can ease these symptoms. The 100 milligram dose is a patent drug, but compounding pharmacies can inexpensively provide the larger doses required for this condition. There is little interest in this because there is no huge price tag. Hallucinogens such as ketamine, which is used for date rape, or LSD, are recurrent fashions in psychiatry. Recent trials are underway to treat depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder using small doses of these, and there is a lot of enthusiasm in some circles. LSD has been considered disreputable and classified Schedule I, which is no known use since the war on drugs in the 1970s. Even though it has no fatal dose and its toxicities are modest compared with many prescriptions. Although these therapeutic uses may have merit, I fear they are further abuses 
even though there is no patented way to profit from these older drugs yet. The mental health industry's ambition, now mostly realized, is to be the universal solution for every problem and to use the drugs for nearly anyone. The National Institute of Mental Health says one in five U.S. citizens, quote, live with a mental illness. Wikipedia in 2020 noted that, quote, worldwide, more than one in three people in most countries report sufficient criteria for at least one psychiatric disorder at some point in their life. In the United States, 46% qualify for a mental illness at some point. They were citing, respectively, the Bulletin of the World Health Organization and a 2005 paper by Ronald Kessler in Archives of General Psychiatry. He is the most widely cited psychiatric researcher in the world. He said in his paper, quote, interventions aimed at prevention or early treatment need to focus on youth. Industry financing pushes this narrative. The money passes back and forth, and it is hard to tell what is industry propaganda and what comes from legitimate psychiatric sources, if there is such a thing. For example, mentalhealthfirstaid.org, accessed in 2019, is a link farm for dozens of psychiatric groups of all genders and species. It says, quote, In the United States, almost half of adults, 46.4%, will experience a mental illness during their lifetime. Half of all mental disorders begin by age 14 and three-quarters by age 24. They emphasize that besides 50% of adults, children who are traditionally off-limits should be drug candidates as well. The following chapters explain how 17% of the entire U.S. populace came to be using psychiatric drugs.